Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Motorsport Magazine for the very best in motor racing. Hello, everybody, and a warm welcome to the very first podcast of 2011. And what a way to start. We are at the headquarters of the McLaren Formula One team. Inside the McLaren Technology Center, just outside Woking in the south of England. Beautiful winter's day, and we have with us, of course, the team principal, Martin Whitmarsh. Less than a month from the first race, and Martin is going to spend at least an hour with us talking about all things Formula One and McLaren. Before we get into that, however, I must just tell you about our latest subscription offer. You can save over 23% on the cover price of the magazine and get a free motorsport branded umbrella. Well, okay, if you live in England, an umbrella is well worth having. And this one is worth... 30 pounds, well, 29.99. So when you subscribe for one year, you get 23% off the cover price of the magazine and a free umbrella. So, Martin, let's get straight into the questions and we have a great many of them from our readers, I can tell you. Um, But I'd like to start the ball rolling, uh, looking back at the launch of the new car in Berlin, except it wasn't the new car. Well, it was it was the new car, but uh, it was a new car, and uh, inevitably, particularly when you're showing a car unclothed, as we did in Berlin, you hold some secrets back. I think there were quite a lot of new things that people could see on that car, um, but we're we're testing as we speak today, uh, and inevitably there are some things that are running today that weren't shown in Berlin. But it was the chassis was a new car. The uh, primary bodywork was a new car, but there's some bits and pieces. The car will evolve. I mean, that's the nature of Formula One today. You know, we aim well, it, within this business every 20 minutes. Uh, so during the course of this podcast, I hope there'll be another modification of the car. And uh, it's, it's an organic living thing. We never race the same car twice. So whenever you pick a moment to expose or show the car, it will it will have changed by the time you next use it and if you're going to expose it to the level that we did in in berlin then you're going to be a little bit more cautious about what you show um i mean can you give us an idea of whether this sort of what what we didn't see was was more aerodynamic or packaging or uh still today aerodynamics are the major differentiator so uh, i think we'll see uh, a range of and there are as we as we uh, as I said earlier, running now uh, parts that weren't in Berlin, uh, well, they didn't. Some of them didn't exist at that time. That's the pace of of change in Formula One. So, but they're running today. Martin, can I just looking back to last year, quickly? I mean, I always think of McLaren as being 
the team more than any other which progresses and develops through a season and improves through a season. Um, and, you know, 09 is a great example of that. When you started off with a, with a bad car and made it into a, a winner, was it my imagination or, or last year did you not perhaps quite um, progress as much as you anticipated? Well, we didn't progress as much as we'd like because no. uh, I think it's clear and I think I would have said that that championship was going to be won by the team that made the biggest improvements in, in the club. And uh, you, I think if you contrast with Ferrari, I think they did... did from mid to three quarters, they made a, a decent step, mm. and it was about that time. You know, we still had improvements, but the gradient or rate of improvement wasn't as great as we'd wanted, and and I think that was the period where you know we uh, potentially lost that championship campaign. You know, we mm. were still there at the end, but uh, <coughs> you know, had we in the last four or five races had a car that was half a second quicker, we would have won the world championship, mm. and it's mm. as simple as that. So, you know, I, nowadays uh, all of the top teams are—they uh, are improving from one race to another, and that's uh, that is the race. And uh, uh, I think we had a, you know, and you are trying to understand it. I think you can have a lean period where you, you we all go around to the wind tunnel, expect them to have these many eureka moments mm. which uh, aggregate to a decent uh, weekly improvement mm. and you know sometimes you go around and uh, you know you feel like opening the champagne cuz it's been a great week mm. and next week you go around and it's been less good you you know you can't we try and have as much discipline focus uh, creativity uh, to, to grind along making those improvements. Sometimes you over-deliver, sometimes you under-deliver on, mm. on what you want or expect. Mm. Martin, how, how does all of this that you're describing square with the fact that the sport is trying to do things more economically, try, trying to save some <coughs> money? Because superficially what you're describing sounds horribly, fiercely expensive. But it is. But I mean, there's, I mean therein lies an interesting point. We are... Uh, running more uh, c components, a greater variety of components, and doing more tests with less wind tunnel time, less CFD capacity, uh, and less people. And I think the RRA has, you know, has a whole range of different challenges uh, within the sport, um, but undoubtedly it is encouraging uh, better practice than we may traditionally have had, and I think we, you know we are. I, you know, I know this team is more efficient uh, than it uh, used to be uh, because you know, the, the focus we have creative people who, you know, it wasn't a question of make the car quicker regardless of the cost, um, but uh, the cost was of the second, you know, was second order importance. Whereas now, mm. very clear, you have a finite uh, amount of resource, people, money, wind tunnel time, but we want to have the quickest car. And the nice thing is, I, I think it's been entirely healthy, uh, not just in this team, I think throughout the sport, and we've got to increasingly talk about the race for efficiency um, within our sport. I think that's, that's important, and it's, I think it's happened here, and I'm sure it's happened elsewhere. I mean, it, it is gripping to think that something on that car changes roughly every 20 minutes, and it is gripping to think that here we are sitting in the very building where it's all, all happening somewhere silently, wondrously. C can you just tell 
us and our readers about a, a 24-hour cycle here at the Technology Centre? Yeah, I mean, firstly, we're sat, uh, this technically is my office, so this is the uh, McLaren headquarters uh, part of the building, which is the quieter part of the building. Um, you may detect this office is, even by McLaren and my standards, quite tidy. I tend to live <laughs> in the other end of the building, so uh, I think it's uh, quite well established in the company that I, I still live in, although I am the CEO of the group, I still live in racing and I enjoy being down there. It's a little bit noisier there than it is at this end of the building, or it can be. Um, but, it, you know, I think what we set out to do here, you know, I mean, it's, it, you know, we're sat, as I say, in, in my office in headquarters. We've got a fabulous view on a nice winter's day. We're looking at a fantastic new production facility being built also for our road car program. Uh, I first stood here about 15 years ago, uh, probably almost this very spot, but about four or five metres lower on the ground, uh, and it was an ostrich farm. And uh, we've, we've set out to build this palace of engineering. And you know what we're trying to do is, if you can't be the best, you try to you, you try to have the the best people. And that's you know the key thing actually is not the building, the facilities. Uh, you need all of those to attract and retain and motivate the best people in the world. Uh, but, you know, not just McLaren, Formula One really brings people who are passionate about uh, the pursuit of excellence, the pursuit of performance, trying to win, whatever. And, and you know, that's the biggest joy, really. You know, the cars are great, the technology is fantastic. But, uh, and for, you know, for, for someone as myself who have been involved in McLaren for 22 years now, uh, the biggest joy is, you know, when I look, go down there, I mean, people like Neil Oatley, who was here when I arrived, is still here, uh, and is just, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest unsung heroes of our sport. You know, he works 25 hours a day. You st I still get emails from him at 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and he has uh, such a huge heart, very quiet man, but uh, uh, really an absolute hero. <coughs> but then people like Paddy Lowe, who's our technical director, Tim Goss, engineering director, Phil Prue, head of, head of race engineering. You know, a lot of these guys, I, you know, I recruited them as, as graduates or, you know, as very young engineers, and they've grown and developed. They can give me a hard time now in the company. They've got enough confidence and self-belief, and, uh, you know, they're, they're dedicated, very bright, but they're also good human beings, and, and, uh, and I, I'm very privileged to work, you know, in, in, I've been privileged to work in this company for a long time, but really to work with those sorts of people, the quality of people, you know, Nigel met some of them, that, you know, they are good quality people, they want to win, they're very bright, um, but you can sit down and talk to them at a, at a race meeting or hear uh, about their engineering passions, and, and uh, you know, it's very, very stimulating and a great honour for me to, to work amongst them. But as we're a month away from Bahrain, are you working here 24 hours a day, seven days a week? I mean, is that car being, being worked on in some way all day and all night? Uh, yes, it is. So, uh, you know, those of us who were here at the weekend, we were obviously uh, taking the car that was launched in Berlin and turning that into the car that uh, we're doing some aero uh, running today before uh, we start track testing in, in Jerez. And, you know, that's, that's the, again, one of the great things. You know, I, I came in here at the weekend and you just see people beavering away, uh, working hard to get 
that latest uh, eureka moment onto the car uh, and make it maybe that one hundredth of a second quicker lap time by so doing. And and uh, you know that it's it's uh, the whole process is still you know for for most of us involved is 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 absolutely great. Um, obviously the test you've you've had this year you've run with the old car but on just on the Pirelli's doing testing on those I mean wh- how have you found them I mean we obviously heard mixed reports from different teams I mean how are they working on on the McLaren uh, well I, I think firstly uh, Pirelli I think very brave to jump into uh, this position and and you know I think we've got to be very grateful that they're here because the tires are fairly fairly important I uh, I think the, uh, the the situation is if they provided uh, benign, easy-to-use tyres, then we'd, we'd all quietly, or, or the enthusiasts would be grumbling about uh, the fact that the show wasn't as good as we wanted it to be. Uh, if they produce tyres which have some serious degradation, become challenging for the engineering team to set the car up so they don't damage, and are challenging for the driver to exploit, then drivers and teams, Formula 1 teams being what they are, will all complain about these damn tyres and how difficult they are to use. Uh, but that's, that's part of the sport. And, uh, you know, I think... Pirelli, uh, you know, they're going to give us some 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 good challenge, some good technical challenge. But, you know, it, we shouldn't underestimate to make the tyres which go through the real beating, you know, the loads and forces that we generate in our Formula One in Formula One tyres are far beyond uh, those being generated in in really any other land vehicle. So uh, first and foremost, they've got to be safe, and I think Pirelli will uh, will will achieve that. Pirelli, I think, are being responsive to the various demands of the teams and the circuits, um, but that won't stop us from complaining about them when we sense that other people um, are exploiting them better than we are. Uh, and and and. and uh, uh, yeah, exactly that. That's the nature of Formula One. And it is actually is quite something, isn't it, in a way to be able to persuade a tyre company to build a tyre f- sort of far less efficient than it could than it could build. It's, it it must be a, philosophically, it must be quite difficult for a tyre company to sort of put its name to something that you know suffers from bad degradation. It is, although uh, of course. Uh, we will complain about the bad degradation, but what uh, what we won't say is, boy, did, you know, at the start of its life, this this tyre had so, such fantastic grip. <laughs> so <laughs> degradation is only relative to yeah. the optimum you get from that tyre. Yeah. So yeah. if you if you go, so you know, I I, I think we, uh, Formula One teams and the drivers, I think we've got to be uh, a little bit more perhaps intelligent in how we describe the phenomena. It's very easy to climb out of the car and say my tyres were shot in eight laps. Uh, The fact is, they have been given a challenge. Uh, We want tyre stops. We want uh, cars on the circuit at different moments, you know, with struggling with tyres. That's part of the spectrum. And frankly, it always always has been. Mm. And, uh, you know, we've... Uh, you know, we got on the case uh, with Bridgestone, who are a fantastic Formula One partner. But you know, in my position uh, within FOTA, I, you know, in the last couple of years, I've been pressuring them to be take a bit more risk with their tyres than they were. And so, you know, 
we, we quietly, under the table, pressure them if we think the tyres are too benign, and we publicly complain if they're a little <laughs> bit more racy. Uh, sadly, that's the So I think, yes, any Formula One or any tyre manufacturer that wants to come into Formula One should be applauded because <laughs> it's uh, generally a fairly thankless task. Yeah. I, I, sorry, I think it brings us on, does it not, to the to the adaptable rear wing or the movable rear wing, whichever is co correct description, because isn't this also to improve the show partly? And what amuses me now is I, I keep hearing and reading that overtaking is far too easy, it's going to, et cetera, et cetera, but surely that's what people have been asking for. No, I don't think anybody's ever asked for it to be easy. No, no, more overtaking. Yeah, and, and now we yeah more overtaking. But so what do we want? Well, I, I think, uh, f firstly, uh, I think we've all meant to call it drag uh, reduction or system, uh, DRS, <laughs> uh, we've been told. Uh, interestingly enough, it was known initially as MRW in, in here, Movable Rear Wing, which, is, uh, which also is what I'm known, well, I'm known as lots of things in the company, but that's one of them. <laughs> that's probably the politer end of the spectrum. But the, um, uh, I think, um, you know, Fota actually conducted the, the, the broadest, most thorough uh, uh, review of, of what public and fans and, and people wanted from the sport. We did a, a very comprehensive survey and partly uh, I would suspect uh, steered by media obsession but uh, the, the, the feedback was we want more overtaking. Um, I don't nece personally necessarily agree but I think that if you are going to go and ask the public what they want and take they take the time and effort to respond to you, I, I think it's difficult then to ignore that. So, you know, we were faced with an issue, if we cast our mind back a year, we had, after one race in Bahrain, uh, we had abandoned uh, refuelling, primarily for cost reasons, in truth, and some safety, and there was a little bit of panic setting in, because we hadn't foreseen fantastic world championship we would ultimately have and at that point you're having to fix regulations for the coming year a decision was taken based upon uh, the, the concerns and the issues that have been expressed by our great viewing public that we should uh, find ways to, to deal and provide potentially more overtaking. Now my view is, you know, I've heard now people say oh, the overtaking is going to be too easy, this is a disaster. I think, firstly, you can't, it's very, very difficult to engineer into uh, the situation easier overtaking. It's very easy to reduce the authority of this wing or moderate the authority if we suddenly say, do you know what, this overtaking is a doddle, they really are. I suspect it's not going to be quite as easy as people suppose and we can now tune it. So I think we've, we've responded to, to public uh, opinion as expressed, as I say. To a degree, Formula One and some of its pundits aren't terribly creative, and I think we get on the bandwagon of saying that overtaking is a disaster. We've got, and, and I think we, could, we to some extent, yeah, we, we condition uh, the public into believing it as well. And uh, you know, I, I've watched NASCAR. I fully accept that's got a huge audience, terribly professional show. It doesn't quite do it for me, and, he, and they draft past each other, left, right, and centre. I have difficulty. Some of the greatest races that I can recall uh, in, in my career have been 
created as a consequence of the difficulty of overtaking mm, uh, and therefore you know and i think again people all say it was easier 10 years ago 20 years ago i can only you know i can't go back as far as some of uh, some of the people around the table but i but i th i think we just we've just come out of a great great world championship which was thrilling and certainly had me sat on the edge of my seat right down to the last race uh, and uh, if we have created potentially too much authority in the drag reducing systems, uh, i.e. these movable rear wings, then it's very, very easy. You know, in the worst extreme, if if the show is is so bad as a consequence, we just stop using it. We just it, we, and that's we. But you ca so you can engineer out. You can't engineer in. So I think it was the right thing to do. But um, to me, the only thing about all this is Martin. It seems to me that all these things really are window dressing, in the sense of you know whether it's movable rear wings or even curves. I mean, except we have curves for for other reasons too. But but. There is constant talk about improving the show, m allowing more overtaking to take place, but surely it's all sidestepping the fundamental problem, which is it's the, the problem is created in the first place partly by the aerodynamics and not being able to run very close behind another car, and also in a lot of cases by the circuits themselves. And it seems to me introducing things like movable rear wings, it's not a straightforward thing because it's not as though you can use it all the time whenever you feel like it. It's making it more and more and more complicated for the fans to figure quite what's going on a lot of the time. What do you think about that? Um, well, I think um, all the time, I mean, it, it, all the time that you're running uh, in atmosphere, i.e., you, know, you don't put a big bell chamber over the circuit and run under a vacuum, uh, we are going to have aerodynamics. And, you know, you go and look at, if it, and if you have generally, very high standard of drivers and generally a good quality of teams they will be fairly evenly matched and it's quite difficult and if you watch uh, you know if if you watch lesser formulas with the sort of hooligan drivers actually you get quite a lot of entertainment from that um, if you watch professional uh, touring cars DTM is probably the most professional uh, and you've got some you know there are some hooligans in there as well, but there are quite a few decent drivers. They have great, great difficulty pushing those Absolutely. bricks around and overtaking. Uh, I think, so, so I think you, you've got that difficulty. I think the, we haven't paid enough attention to the circuits, and I think when you go to a circuit like Abu Dhabi and you see the scale of investment and the commitment is very difficult and you feel very bad to criticize because isn't it good that these people are making this level of investment in a sport that we all love mm -hmm. however you've got to cry at the lost opportunity yeah. when you have Absolutely. on the longest straights in in the sport and you put a crash bang chicane at the end of it yeah. with only one line through it yeah. it's an inevitable consequence and you know you look at you know, a few years ago, you know, when you used to watch IRL a little bit more, when you go to uh, an airfield-based circuit that's got wide corners and more, more, more than one line through a corner. You're thinking about Cleveland. You, yeah, Cleveland. You, you, yes. you, you, you and you just thought that it's, it is so obvious. Uh, and you know, the, the you know, we've done some. You know, we've given information to, uh, to to various people where, if you analyse over the last five years. Uh, where are the proper overtakes, and you you know, and see how many there are in Formula Ones that have been 
real overtaking manoeuvres, then you, you, you actually, by analysing those, find out that 90% you know, of them happened at about 12, 12 corners in the world. And it's not just that corner, it's the preceding corner the straight that leads to it. Brazil you know, has appalling facilities, <laughs> has appalling poverty around, it's got many things that are sad about it, yeah. but we all go there expect a good race, don't yeah, we? Yeah. Yeah, right. Whereas, uh, we will go to Abbott, unless they change Abbott Abbey, which again, incredible facility, mm. is, you know, and, and we will go there expecting an average race, even with the drama of a world championship mm. being decided because of the topography sure. and the nature of that, that circuit. And, mm. you know, when you start in what is a desert with no apparent financial or physical constraints, it's just a shame that we don't do the obvious and replicate what are the great corners of the world or Absolutely. great corner yeah, sequences yeah, sure, of the world. Sure. A lot of people listening might say, well, why not? How on earth does this occur, Martin? I mean, as you say, unlimited money, unlimited space, and yet it's not right. Why? why? Well, well I, I think, uh, you know, to an extent, we for, Formula One gets many things wrong, of course, and the teams get many things wrong, and, and we're trying to improve how, how we conduct ourselves and, and, and how we work together. The teams haven't always worked together very effectively, as I think you may know. Um, and I think, you know, we, we're also, we're quite self-critical, so we've tried to do a variety of things to improve overtaking. One of the best technical processes was something which people laugh about which was the overtaking working group the overtaking working group was the first time as an engineer that I've seen the issue certainly the aerodynamic issue to be dealt with in a, in a logical uh, and an intelligent manner now actually it didn't amount to anything and it didn't amount to anything because the cars that we then raced following the outcome and uh, of OWG were allowed to have double diffusers uh, which uh, weren't in the minds of well weren't in the minds of most of us uh, and were but by allowing that to have occurred we destroyed that the initiative that the OWG so you know, we, we had to go and do it again but there is a limit to I think there, there was well, there's a limit to what we can do with the car and the aerodynamics uh, and you know we uh, perhaps the economy of our sport is very difficult uh, at the moment for many of these circuits or most of the circuits to make any money so on the one hand commercially uh, they're not making very much money and we need them to build fantastic facilities that are demanded for in Formula One uh, so we're beating them up to build new pit complexes um, and perhaps we're not concentrating on the real fundamental points of let's create the, the environment in which we can have exciting overtaking mm. and if you know Spa and, and Brazil and you know, those sort of natural amphitheatres that exist at least they are yeah. there but we're not doing enough uh, and that's so I'm not criticising the circuits or the circuit designer we as a Formula One community or broader than that motor racing community we haven't done enough to say right what needs to be done Let's define it. Let's understand how it, what it is going to cost, and then let's create a commercial model to make sure it can happen. Because it's okay for me to say, you know, I happen to believe that it, primarily it's down to the circuits. But I, you know, I also know enough now in my position in this sport to realise that many of the circuits really struggle to be able to fund their involvement in Formula One. They do not have the money to invest in changing the circuit. So we've got to pull back holistically 
as a for, as a motor racing community and change that model if we're going to really address the point. That's my it, opinion. It always surprises me, well, particularly places like Abu Dhabi and Bahrain, where they start with desert or whatever, and they've got absolute carte blanche and fairly unlimited money. Why they build the sort of bland track that they do that you know why not dig up sand and make undulations yeah, exactly well that, that's the modern you know in, in fairness to uh, I'll, you know i'm closer to bahrain but i'll sort of try and be objective about Abu Dhabi. <laughs> but but the the, the 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 fact is they are not formula one experts uh they they you know we should be very grateful that they have the enthusiasm and the passion to to invest lots of money in our sport um, and they are then advised to use uh, the circuit designers that are accepted as having designed most of the modern Formula One circuits. Uh, and uh, for whatever reason, there, we, there hasn't been the gradient of learning curve that there should have been in developing new circuits in the last no, 10 years. No, no. Well, it's extremely diplomatically put. I tell you what, I'm, I'm well impressed with that, aren't you? We've got to move on to some readers' questions. And we're going to mention the word Ferrari, which is always good fun when, when you come to working. Um, Martin, F Ferrari have uh, expressed unhappiness at the um, 2013 engine regulations, saying that they would like to have V6 engines because that's the kind of engine they put in their road cars. Well, now, as you are also a fantastic road car producer, what is your view of the engine regulations in 2013? Okay, well, firstly, uh, uh, McLaren uh, and, and Ferrari, uh, I think, are much better reconciled to one another these days. I think we've got certainly a lot of respect for Ferrari, uh, and uh, perhaps we've come out of our shell. We're, we're not uh, ashamed to say these things. I think they're, yes, they're a great team, um, and uh, they've got a, you know, a great history, and you know, I happen to believe so does McLaren as well. Um, the, the problem of, of progress in, in Formula One is, is this. One, we've developed a sport, been incredibly successful, and the prize for winning is high, and therefore what people are prepared to invest. So we've got, the sport has changed, even in the 20-odd you know, years that I've been involved. Uh, it, it has evolved, and you know, inevitably, you know, the, the team was 100 strong when I when I joined, and, and uh, or less than, less than 100, and uh, it was a great era for me. And um, you know, and at that point, people were telling me it was fantastic when we were only 20 strong. We always used to go to the race, and it's so big at 100. Um, and now we sit in a building, you know, with a group which has got thousands. Um, uh, and certainly with technology, you know, I was uh, the angry young engineer, as many people can attest, through technical working groups fighting for technologies because I, you know, I have that enthusiasm and that particular bent. Um, but I think now we have to accept that people look to Formula One uh, to, to, to really clean up its act. I, you know, I mentioned earlier that I think the team's doing a slightly better job of working together. It's not easy, we're natural competitors, but we, we're trying that. I think Formula One developed this image of you know, gas-guzzling, money-guzzling uh, sport. And, and you know, in this uh, modern times, modern environment of you know, political correctness, etc., then that's increasingly unacceptable or an unappetizing 
pleasing to people uh, and we've got to do, be doing things which are considered to be uh, socially responsible or socially appropriate uh, and uh, you know I you know V12 engines and certainly I've not well there's not many Ferraris I think since Dino that's had as little as six but mm. Ferrari V12s are a fantastic sound and you know listen when we used to listen to them in Formula One cars and Honda V12s and Lamborghini yeah. V12s yeah. they were fantastic and you know, some of us considered it retrograde to be going down to uh, only eight. Mm. Um, mm. But we kind of got used to it. And I have to say that, you know, when I, you know, in, in a few days' time, I'll go to first track test of our car, I know, you know, having, having been away from them for a while, although I'm surrounded by racing cars, but the, the, the active beast, as I drive into the uh, parking area if I arrive late enough and the cars are running at the time uh, I will get a tingle down my spine when I hear th those V8s on the circuit mm. now the prospect of a straight four with turbochargers to further suppress it uh, doesn't it doesn't satisfy that uh, sort of that quest for that sensory pleasure that you get from this but actually um, you know, so far the V8 still do it for me, and, went, and I didn't think they were when we were in V10 and V12 land. Uh, and I'm sure that you know it, we have to make sure they sound fantastic because that's part of the emotional experience. But we can and will do that. Um, I think the the dilemma that we have, though, which is a serious one, is on the one hand uh, we need to be introducing technologies. Uh, and the technical challenge it's seen as socially responsible. But the problem is there is a cost to doing that, and there's a cost to doing it in the time frame. And at the moment, you know, that we have only three uh, committed automotive manufacturers. Um, we, you know, we can never, we have been as high as eight. I think five to six is a good number to be at. Um, but the, the economy, within the automotive sector in the last few years and the general way in which Formula One has conducted itself has not made us seem attractive to the automotive sector. And sadly, the 2013 regulations um, will... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...are unlikely to bring another automotive manufacturer in, so they won't achieve one of its key objectives. Uh, and I, so we've got to be careful, but I think nonetheless we, we have to... Uh, you know, we, we do have to continue to evolve and develop and not hang on to you know, what we've had in the past. But n- now you're building um, road cars and racing cars and engines for your road mm. cars. Would you, would you consider building your own Formula One engine? Well, I, d- I don't think we'd rule anything out. We're an ambitious uh, team, but I think, um, uh, again, being completely frank about it, uh, Formula One is the third largest sporting spectacle in the world. It's the greatest environment for brand differentiation, brand exposure. Uh, we have, you've seen the big factory that's being built over there, we have aspirations for 4,500 units a year. It, if you look at amortising uh, the, the commercial marketing value across 4,500 units is actually not the right business model. Formula One is such a powerful marketing tool that it should be used to demonstrate the technologies which are spread over, uh, you know, over a million units a year. So we're considering anything. We are going into GT uh, racing and, and that's, you know, because we're racers, we like doing those things and we're looking forward to that and, you know, we like, you know, we obviously, we won Le Mans at our first outing. One day we'd like to go back to Le on and win it again. Um, I think again we need just need to understand uh, GT you know, GT racing and LMP racing. You know, GT racing interesting one. We're developing the car. In, in one sense, I'm excited about it. But when you take our road car, strip it down, and prepare it for racing, then to make it good for either GT3, GT2, I've got to add a lot of weight to make it heavier and take about 200 horsepower out of it, <laughs> which is quite a strange thing <laughs> to make a racing car, which is considerably less powerful and heavier than the road car well, variant. Well, it's unfathomable, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. You, yeah. You, you mentioned uh, LMP there. I mean, is that something you, you've thought about? I mean, obviously, because I went to see CRS racing the other day, and they're busy, you know, building the GT3 car. And you know, whether you do GT4 or GT2 after that is, hasn't been decided. But you mentioned LMP. Is that will we see a McLaren LMP car? Um, well, we don't plan it at the moment. I'm, I'm seeing ACO next week, and we're, we'll talk to them. I mean, we have made a decision uh, to to be a, a super sports car company and clearly you can see the manifestations of it people some people will criticize some people say taking off the ball but you know we've decided to do that Uh, our brand and the type of products that we produce and our very not nature and philosophy means we've got to race so you know I uh, the GT program there were some misgivings uh, frankly in in our board about well why are we doing this is it distraction and I you know my view to the board was you know it actually is is one of the easiest business decisions because if we don't race the car someone else will and I'm damned if I'm going to let someone else race it uh, or or develop it for racing that is so uh, you know it was a very easy decision and we're in it we've decided to jump in the GT3 as I say I I, you know frankly I went to Ferrari and said let's race each other Uh, let's make you know let's do something they Ferrari was showing misgivings about GT2 GT3 and GT1 so I, I said to them, you know, you decide the rules and we'll race you. You know, we can do, you know, I think people want to see Ferrari and McLaren racing, GT racing. Uh, you know, and I'd like to see GT cars that are capable of going around Le Mans in, you know, 340, uh, something like that. would be pretty easy to do. Um, not, you know, not 
four minutes plus you know and i think going to Le Mans at the moment you know class wins are all technically interesting and, and people talk about them but actually you know anyone want, if you're going to go to any race you yeah. want to be the first car <laughs> to take to take the checkered flag and right. uh, therefore you know uh, it is a little bit strange i think uh, the lnp programs uh, you know they're quite expensive i don't think people people relate to them if if you could get to sports car racing which was gt based which is ferrari McLaren, Porsche, uh, Lamborghini, uh, Aston Martin, the thoroughbreds racing. I think the public would be aligned to them, uh, and you know they you'd create a sector at the moment from Formula One to to touring cars. You've got this sort of blur of categories, and I don't think anyone can quite click onto them at the moment. I think if we had something that was clearly you know, a sports car, and G- GT car, whatever you want to call it, and the thoroughbreds racing, I think it would be a fantastic series. But anyway, we're new to it. Lots of these guys have been around for some time. We've just said, look, let's build a GT3. Let's talk to ACO. And, you know, and I'm just going to say, you know, we we like to come and win Le Mans one day. I, you know, class wins, okay, but I'm not, you know, I can't I can't get excited about winning, no. going there and being the class no. winner. I probably shouldn't say that. And I expect the marketeers will tell me that's uh, what we've got to go and do. But um, you know, for the, for the psyche of McLaren to get really excited about being a class winner is not it's not in our nature. We'd like to go and win. Uh, so you know maybe maybe we have to do LMP one day or or, or maybe you know th- th- we'll, we'll see where GT racing goes. Well, you, if they bring Canam racing back, you've got to do that. <laughs> well, um, well, it was interesting. I mean, yesterday I was asked, "Aren't you going to go get an entry in Grand Am, which is as close as you get at yeah. the moment?" And and uh, in fact, we're you know we're going to talk to them as well because yeah. you know it's 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 int- interesting. Big but market Ferrari. Ferrari, well, Ferrari have have just gone in there, and and one of the things we just need to understand is how you know how you you have you know these whatever Scott and Riley's and Lola chassis and whatever else, and you put a GT car alongside. It's it's a, if you end up in convoluted equivalence formulas, again, it, I don't think they're quite so rewarding. But um, anyway, you know, US is a big market. If Ferrari's there, uh, I mean that's the attraction. To be honest, you know, racing either being beaten by or even beating mm. uh, some of those sort of little sports prototypes isn't as thrilling as, as being there to race Ferrari. No, and and it would well definitely help sell the car, wouldn't it? Yeah, no, and I think I think uh, it, it will do that. But you know, you again, I, I was asked yesterday about uh, talking to them uh, to, to, to NASCAR about Grand Am. You know, you've got ALMS over there. There's meant to be a GT3 is going there in a USA series, uh, and that's part of the problem. You've got so many. Yeah. Effort, you know, I struggle to understand it all. How the viewing public understand? It, it, are these the best cars? Are these the best drivers? Is this, or are they just dodged into a championship that's easy to win? Um, we need to get through a few more readers' questions because they've taken the trouble to send them in. Um, we have lots of Kimi Raikkonen fans, so while you're on your diplomatic role, um, was there any talk of Kimi coming back to McLaren last year? Uh, Michael Spitali wants to know, and he also wants to know, Martin, um, what your relationship with Kimi was like and how you found him within the McLaren uh, environment. 
Um, well, firstly, I, I am a Kimmy fan, and I think I've made that uh, clear and p publicly before. And in fact, you know, I've often, even when he was driving for Ferrari, uh, you know, I think he's an underestimated driver. Underestimated in the sense everyone knows how blindingly quick he is, but I think uh, people didn't realise, I think, how you know, how smart he is. That was a good technical input. He. he uh, he provides a team. So I think he's uh, to some extent uh, underestimated and given his uh, huge talent, uh, you know, and he won a world championship, but I think he could have won more and achieved more. Uh, so that there were absolute real negotiations last year uh, and uh, I opened them up, I, uh, you know, I approached them uh, and I was very interested. I personally uh, always got on very well with, with Kimi. Um, uh, and I'd have, uh, you know, it would have been an interesting uh, challenge to have done so. Um, I think uh, at the time, uh, you know, we were quite well advanced in uh, some negotiations, um, and uh, you know, uh, I mean, the, dif the, the, the difference and why he didn't come was the fact that I, I su suddenly realised that Jensen might be uh, available, and. Uh, I, I made a, an offer, I took a punt, and uh, I think to everyone's surprise, Jensen accepted the challenge, and I'm, you know, I'm very glad that he did. It's interesting, isn't it, how that all that's turned out, because from the outside, it appears it really is a happy, friendly, relaxed relationship between these two guys, Hamilton and, and Button. Is, is, is that a fact? Well, you'd expect me to say it is because, uh, but but, you know, I, again, I've got no uh, no need to say anything about it because I think you know the people are astute enough. We, you know, we go around in a circus around the world. You can detect by body language. You've seen many teammates. I've seen many teammates in many teams say how they you know they've got it respect for one another and they work well together when we know, all know that they hate each other's guts. But the uh, in this particular pairing. I've got to say, Jensen came into uh, a team, uh, you know, as 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 a new boy, and he he won, uh, you know, he won everyone over, including Lewis. And I think, you know, he 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 last year uh, won some great races. He won races by one being quick, but two really take being intelligent how he set about that. And I think uh, Lewis realised. There was something. Hey, I can learn something from this guy, and he's very approachable. And I think the natural charm and, and real comparatively laid-back approach of, of of Jensen was was very good for Lewis. And I also think that you know uh, part of a Grand Prix driver's job is dealing with the media, dealing with the public interest. And some of them, and most of them, didn't get into being racing racer, motor racing drivers to do that. Some of them don't like doing it. Some of them can't do it very well. <laughs> uh, I don't know whether, uh, how, how, to what extent uh, Jensen likes doing it, but he can do it very well. You know, I, you mentioned Kimmy. You know, the nice thing, uh, part of my job, which I did not set out to do, is to talk to the media and talk to sponsors and go to events as an engineer is not why I came into the sport to do but at least when when I you know, the nice thing is if uh, if we had Kimmy in the team when I had to go on the stage in front of 500 sponsors or sponsor 
customers or something, Kimmy would usually leave there, leave plenty for me to say. Whereas uh, when I turn up at an, uh, an event now for Vodafone or Exxon Mobil, and uh, you've got uh, you know our two drivers are on stage before me. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm waiting to go on. I think, well, that one, what, these people don't want me. Uh, two, these two drivers outstarred me, uh, and they're so damn eloquent, they've out-talked me. Uh, so it's, uh, it's very, they're a very tough act to follow. They're both incredibly good, but I think Lewis has, you know, has, is growing up in the sport, in the public eye. I think he's, he's learnt and will continue to learn from Jensen about how he conducts himself. Uh, and I think that's, I think it's been valuable. And I think, you know, Lewis is open to that. I think Jensen knows how quick Lewis is. There's genuine, uh, genuine respect. Uh, and uh, I think you know, th there's a great relationship. And it's, you know, that's not PR speak. That is, uh, no, people can see it. Yeah. Really so like it. Last, last year was the first year Lewis had without a manager. I mean, did you see a, a big difference in, in his approach I mean, and mindset? Um, well, I, th I think what, what we had last year was uh, Lewis uh, trying to take control or taking control of his life. And, you know, Anthony was a, his father who had managed him, had mentored him, had brought him up, um, had been an incredibly strong influence in, in uh, Lewis's life. And there's no doubt that, uh, you know, there lots of people, uh, when you get a world champion, I think lots of people accept some credit for getting him there. Uh, but I think uh, there's no doubt that Anthony, uh, in certainly in the very early years, and you know, uh, Lewis wouldn't have come to the attention of of McLaren, and wouldn't have got the support from McLaren without Anthony uh, establishing the the platform for that. Um, so I think it was, you know, it's very, very difficult when a father is the manager, uh, the mentor, mm. and everyone. And uh, I think what Lewis did was, you know, I'm sure was very, very difficult for both of them. And, you know, I, you know s sadly for me, when I started in, in this sport, the drivers were, uh, were older than me. Uh, now drivers' fathers are younger than me. Um, so I see them g grow and develop, and I've known Anthony from, you know, ambitious, pushy, uh, karting father to, uh, to, to grow and develop. And I think they, they both had quite a tough time last year. Um, ad adjusting to their positions in life, and you know the great thing is that they've, uh, you know, it, and it, when you've all the pressures of racing, but they've, they, you know, they've spent some good time together during the winter. I think there's a good reconciliation, and there's been the reforming and rebonding of the father and son because you know one instance this time last year lewis lost mentor manager and to some extent mm. even his father relationship and i think so i think he's lewis is in a much stronger uh, frame of mind and uh, <coughs> than he was uh, this time last year i think when anthony was around i think a lot of us had a had a perception rightly or wrongly that lewis more or less didn't you know blow his nose without his father telling him how to do it um, and I, I, when after the split, for a little time, it seemed as though perhaps he was a, just a little bit adrift, that he was sort of in a new, it was a familiar environment, but in new circumstances. And I wondered if perhaps Jensen's arrival uh, was particularly 
fortunate from that point of view in terms of the effect it had? No, I, th I think it. I think it was. I mean, I think uh, looking back at the development of, of Lewis, you know, and, and certainly, you know, I think I've known him since he's what a uh, very early teens, eleven, twelve, thirteen, mm. or whatever. Uh, you know, we we've all, you know, we McLaren could have done uh, could have done a better job Lewis we all could have done but actually you know what turned out was pretty good so uh, we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves but the nature of us is we're all a little bit hard on ourselves but I think it I think uh, you're right that Jensen's arrival in the team was was well timed in that particular regard and I think his manner very easy manner and warm manner was was very uh, very comforting to, to, to Lewis and his own development sure. Martin, here's one that uh, you don't have to answer if you don't want to. It uh, comes from a reader called Aral or Arale. Uh, sorry if I haven't pronounced it correctly, but it goes like this. You've worked directly with many world champions, such as Mika, Kimi, Londo, Leonardo. Of these, who do you like most and why? <laughs> now, of course, of course. We can skirt around this one, if you like, and move straight well, on. Well, of course, I, I absolutely love the two world champions that I now work with. <laughs> um, but but uh, equally and, and uh, without any favouritism and, and uh, total balance. <laughs> uh, but that, and they're great. So if I discount those two, <laughs> then I've enjoyed, you know, I'm very, you know, very fortunate, obviously, from, you know, the end of the Alan era, uh, Ayrton, for four years and, and through, uh, I've got a, I've got quite a lot of affection for for Mika, uh, and I think really a number of reasons. One, again, known Mika since 1992, so when he was. From when he was driving with Lotus, didn't know him before that, but it was very young, and you know he grew up in the team. Um, Two, I think Mika went through. You know, no one uh, can point to uh, a dirty move that Mika ever pulled. So Mika was one of the most competitive racing drivers, probably on his day the fastest man on the planet. Desperate hunger to win, but not at any price. Uh, and you know, he had very uh, sort of high standards in that regard. Um, wasn't a darling of the media because Mika's approach was to, to some extent, isolate himself from the media. You know, privately, tremendous sense of humour, great human, and you know, and I'm very honest. Obviously, he had a very serious uh, number of accidents, but a very, very serious uh, accident in the car, in our car, uh, with a with, uh, as a consequence of a puncture. Um, and uh, you know that had probably some bearing on, on the relationship, um, but it, you know he's and he he's you know he's grown and developed since leaving uh, the sport, um, and he's he, he remains a friend. And uh, but you know he, on the other hand, you know I have to say last year, you know sometimes I, I still have dinner with him and I had dinner with him and and uh, Alan and I didn't know Alan. You know I was I was very much at the beginning of my era when he was in a sort of a fairly acrimonious departure from the team. But uh, I, one of the n nicest things in the last year, I had dinner with in London with a with pair of them, and Alan just talking about the early days of his career and how what he had to do to race. Uh, you know, it was in an era where, you know, you had to find the money to do it yourself. And, it, and I was, you know, I was, I was sat in a charming restaurant in London, but I just felt incredibly honoured that these 
two great world champions were just sharing their experiences with me. So I've got a lot of affection for that. But uh, you know, uh, again, you know, I mean, lots of people uh, uh, had a lot of involvement with Ayrton, but it was a, you know a huge honour to to you know, worked with Ayrton. And I worked with him for four years. But um, you know, he was quite an enigmatic figure and I you know I wouldn't say that I had a deep deep relationship with him um, uh, some lots of people claim to have had that but <laughs> I wasn't one of them um, but uh, you know you had to admire him and you know and again uh, you know Kimmy I had worked with Kimmy and, and I, you know, I like Kimmy I think that all of these people are extraordinary uh, human beings, you know, and, and that's you know, we we work with quite a lot of young drivers, and I'm very proud of some of the things that we do. But you know, I, I sometimes I find myself talking to some youngsters, uh, and maybe I'm giving them a bit of a, a rollicking about their application or whatever. And, and often I find myself saying, "Listen, you know, you are, uh, you know, if they might be an 18-year-old, look, you're an absolutely normal. You're not abnormal. You're an absolutely normal 18-year-old. You're lazy. You don't get up. You don't have <laughs> enough focus. You know, I've got one of those at home. However, what we're looking for is extraordinary people that we're investing in to make them into world champions. So, you know, I'm not trying to criticise you. I don't want you to be unbalanced. You're a normal person, but actually. We're looking for extraordinary people, uh, and uh, extraordinary people, uh, you know, are you know, they, they are very complex, um, and they're they're very interesting to to know and be around. I was very sorry it didn't it didn't work out not just with McLaren with Formula One in general, with uh, with Montoya, because I thought he was he had so much talent, and I just thought he was a great loss to to F1. What 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 are your feelings about him? Yeah, again, I, I like Juan Pablo, and, and uh, he was an extraordinary talent. Uh, you know, Villeneuve uh, Junior was an extraordinary talent. There's, there are some who you could have gave incredibly exciting racing drivers in terms of car control, bravery, drama, excitement. You know, absolutely fantastic, and. Yet you know, they did not. Uh, we we didn't see the best of them, uh, and they, you know, circumstance, their own efforts, maybe the efforts of those around them, maybe the efforts of the team, and sometimes you know the, us, we we didn't do enough to to exploit them, and I think that's sad. And you you see that at lots of levels. I mean, interesting. We're working with young drivers, working a little bit with Kevin Magnussen uh, at the moment. One of the reasons that you know I was asked, well, why are we doing that? Well, one of the reasons was. I remember seeing Jan, his father, Formula Ford, and then in Formula Three, and and uh, coming back into this company again t 20 years ago, and saying, "I've just seen this incredible talent. We've you know we've got to sign him, and we we signed him, and uh, and we failed, and we failed not because there wasn't the talent there, but uh, and Jan must take accept some responsibility, but I think we can as well. We didn't get the we didn't turn him into what we should have done, and. Uh, so, you know, in, in one sense, uh, you know, and he's, he's a professional racing driver in GT, he's making a good living, I imagine, having a good life. So for him, maybe he's doing the right thing, but he had the talent to be so much more. Uh, and we, and uh, that was one that failed. And we'll see, we'll, his, we're working with his son now, and we'll see if we can uh, uh, change, uh, change history. Talking of extraordinary people and talking of extraordinary situations, I mean, we're in one now. This, this, what is happening at McLaren in 2011 and going forward is, is, you know, 
incredible when you look back at the history of the company and, and what in particular Ron Dennis has managed to do with the company. And on your way up to where you are now, as it were, as an engineer, were you immediately aware that he too is such an extraordinary man? And in, and in that sense, it must have been quite difficult to, to gel with that kind of person. Yeah, I, fir I first met Ron in the 80s and he offered me a job and, and, and initially I declined actually uh, and I said, look, there's no way we can work together, this just isn't going to work. Uh, so my instinct was that I, I recognised uh, an extraordinary individual. Um, so it wasn't, you know, I, I saw the ambition, the vision, uh, the, the pursuit of excellence, but I, I didn't think it would work with me and I was doing something else at the time but um, he he's also quite an extraordinary salesman so in the end having been quite clear I'd never worked for him well, certainly within a year I was so uh, and, and I have done for 22 years since so uh, uh, but I think you know the number of things about uh, about Ron I mean he, he is uh, you know, I mean I referred earlier uh, to the fact that I was stood uh, here in this very spot, looking out over this uh, this terrain, when it was an ostr with ostriches running around, the person I was obviously stood alongside at the time was Ron, and it was him saying, "We're going to build this th this uh, this palace of engineering, MTC." Uh, it, uh, Paragon it was at the time, yes, it was indeed. Um, it did, I did manage to pers persuade that change, but anyway, the, the I, so I've had one or two little successes along the way, but but the. He had, uh, and to be honest, I, you know, it's, it's a fantastic asset for us today, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I fought him along the way on this building because uh, I thought in growing the business we should spend the money in some other places and not in the, the bricks and mortar. Um, ultimately, he, he had greater vision than me uh, and um, uh, that's why we're sat here today. Um, so uh, he is an extraordinary, extraordinary individual. I think in my time, you know, I've seen quite a lot of team principals come and go, and I've sat at the table either as an underling and slide holder for team principals, or latterly as one myself. Um, so I've seen and observed uh, them. Not many who, you know, Ron is a very wealthy man. Um, and, and thoroughly deserves to be wealthy, given the vision, drive, passion that he's put into uh, to, to, to building. Um, but I also know that uh, you know, if I uh, had a moment now and I bound into Ron's office and said, I've got some good news and some bad news, I've just come up with a scheme that's going to guarantee, the good news is I'm definitely going to win this year's World Championship, bad news is I'm going to do it, we're going to lose a load of money doing it, he'd, he'd go for it, and he's been driven by winning. In, in, in fairness, Frank Williams, I think, would mortgage his house to win as well, but I struggle beyond that to find in uh, you know, and I've seen lots of uh, team principals come and go, become pundits and experts and whatever else, um, but they they never achieved uh, what Frank and Ron achieved uh, because they were here for their own motives, uh, and you know, maybe they you know they made some money and scarpered off, but they didn't leave a legacy. Uh, they didn't achieve. Uh, what, what was achieved, and uh, we wouldn't be here today 
uh, w without uh, Ron. You know, hopefully there's been a number of people who've contributed. Hopefully I've contributed a bit, um, but uh, we, we we wouldn't be here. So, you know, there was a long period of time within the sport. Then, you know, obviously people would pull my leg about living in the shadow uh, of Ron. Uh, people who assumed I was a, uh, a clone. Uh, including Ron on occasion, I think. But uh, I, I think people within the company knew that wasn't the case. And increasingly, uh, within, within the sport, I, you know, you've got to be who you are. Uh, and I admire um, many things about Ron. Doesn't mean I admire everything about Ron, nor does he admire everything about me. And nor do we agree. We've had uh, probably the most spirited. Uh, and hot discussions in this building over the last, or this building and, it, and its predecessor over 20 years, last 20 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's been pretty patient with me. I certainly try to take the door off its hinges a few times with him. So he's been extraordinarily patient to put up with me. So that's one of his other virtues in my eyes, not in others. But he, he's an extraordinary individual and, and he has still a massive passion. He's misunderstood by, by many people. He, he's he uh, is, uh, in some ways, a relatively private and, and shy individual. And I think, in fact, Nigel's probably one of the few people within the media world that understand him. So, he, you know, he gets quite a hard press. Some, you know, sometimes he deserves it because he doesn't, he doesn't deal with the situation in a way that's anything other than likely to create that. Um, and, and again, I, you know, I, I've always been open and honest with him. Uh, he hasn't always agreed with me, uh, but under uh, you know, I think oddly, you know, we have a, we do have quite a lot of affection, and we I think we look out for each other, and uh, I th hope we've complemented each other. And, and uh, uh, you know, for me, I've learnt lots of things from him. I've learned how to do lots of things. I think I've also, by watching, learned how not to do a few things. Uh, but overall, he, you know, he, his contribution to this sport, you know, that there are two or three people who have been very instrumental. Ron has been, in, you know, incredibly constructive to the development of the sport. There's some other very notorious people who, who have been less constructive, um, but nonetheless have also made their mark. Martin, what do you think Ron might have learned from you? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing he'd admit to, that's for sure, Nigel. <laughs> but uh, I, no, I, I think he, uh, in, in terms of uh, managing people, uh, you know, I think now, in, very, in fairness to him, uh, he lets me manage driver relationships completely mm. now and that's not by natural inclination because he loves drivers and he'd like to be in there the fact that he stands back on quite a lot of areas isn't because he wants to stand back he does so because I think he has some some trust and hopefully a little bit of respect for, for what I do mm. um, and so I think I, so he would we, we are both quite competitive and we spar off of each other. So rather like I wouldn't admit to him what I've learned from him, he probably wouldn't <laughs> admit what he'd learned from me yeah. uh, and not even to himself. But I think we both know that we've, we, you know, we've, had, uh, well, we've had some great moments together and we've had some desperate moments together. But overall, I think we've stood back to back. Uh, and uh, you know, I think I passed the point, uh, well, I passed the point quite a long time ago when you know I could really work for another 
for another team um, because I've you know I, I've watched this organisation grow up and you know I referred earlier to the you know the pleasure I have of all the engineers that work in this company I couldn't really go and work anywhere else and, and in any case I'm probably too old people don't make me the offers anymore so uh, I'm probably stuck here well I don't know I think if, if ever I mean I cannot imagine this this happening but if ever your love of engineering and your love of motor racing should wane although why it should I can't imagine you could always go and sort the Middle East out couldn't you <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, and not many teams are lucky enough to have such uh, a good spokesperson, I must say, Martin Whitmarsh, you've been very entertaining, thank you very much, answered things very straight, and uh, I think we've learned quite a lot today, and uh, it's uh, for you to do this immediately before the season, fantastic, thank you very much. Pleasure, thanks. Before we uh, close the first podcast of the year, let me remind you about our latest subscription offer. Yes, I know I told you at the beginning of the show, but this is important stuff. It's important to us and important to you because you save money. And to remind you, there's a 23% saving on the cover price of the magazine at the moment. Plus, you will get a free motorsport umbrella worth 29.99. So, why not subscribe? I mean, at least you know you'll get the magazine every month and it's cheaper than going out and buying it. I cannot see a reason not to. Uh, before we go today, uh, I obviously speak on behalf of everybody uh, at Motorsport Magazine and all of you, I, will, I know that for sure, when we wish uh, Robert Kubica well after a pretty nasty accident uh, in a rally car at last weekend. So we're all with you, Robert, and uh, as is the whole worldwide motor racing community, and let's just hope and pray that we see Kubica back in a Formula One car this year. I hope you enjoyed the first podcast of 2011, and please make sure you join us next time, because we really do have a fantastic guest with us. I'm not going to tell you who it is right now, but I can tell you that he will be coming straight to the Motorsport podcast from our Hall of Fame evening in London, so don't miss it. Meanwhile, it's goodbye from me, goodbye from Ed Foster, and goodbye from Nigel Roebuck, and thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Motorsport Magazine for the very best in motor racing.